book of Mark, chapter number 11. Mark, chapter number 11. We want to resume our time in the book of Mark and um, just to give a, a brief review of where we've been. If you were with us in the spring of 2019, we talked through the first section of Mark down through the first eight and a half chapters. And we asked the question, who is Jesus? And the, the question is unfolding a verse at a time as to who he is. And, of course, we come to the middle of that eighth chapter, and we have Peter's declaration where he says, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus, of course, commends him. Flesh and blood hath not revealed this to you. And he said, But my Father, which is in heaven, and he said, I say unto you, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And so the clear understanding of the first eight chapters is that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. Uh, he is the long-waited-for Messiah that was prophesied in the Old Testament and now has arrived in the New Testament. Uh, we see him prophesied, as we mentioned earlier, in Genesis 3, when the seed of woman would crush the head of the serpent. We see him prophesied in Moses and that one would come after you, Moses, in his likeness. And we see him prophesied uh, in Abraham, and Abraham says, it will be one of your seed that will come, and it will be your seed that all nations of the earth will be blessed by. And of course, David, as he sits upon David's throne, he has prophesied that there would be a king on David's throne for eternity. And we see it would be of David's line and lineage that this prophet has come. Jesus is both prophet, priest, and king. Uh, but in this text that we're reading here in the, the journey through the book of Mark, we're not left open the option that Jesus is merely a good man. We have him as not just a good prophet or a good priest, and though many faith, faiths would say that he is a good prophet or a good man, uh, they would deny the fundamental truth of what the New Testament is claiming and bearing out, and especially in our text this morning, that he was more than just a good man, but he was God-man. He was God in flesh who dwelt among us. And as the New Testament tells us, we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And so as we journey into this passage of Scripture, we saw the first question, who is Jesus? And then the second passage for the next two and a half chapters, we ask the question, what then is the mission of the Messiah? What did he come to do? And this was the big misunderstanding, if you remember. Uh, no sooner did Peter declare, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God, that Jesus says, and I'm going to go and be crucified and buried and will rise again and will we'll come again. And Peter says, far be it from you, Lord, that you would suffer in this way. And he said, it's not going to happen. And Peter literally takes the Lord aside and rebukes him for claiming to be the suffering servant. No, 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 you're the Messiah, you're the Christ, you're the coming king, you're going to come and rule with a rod of iron, you're going to stamp out Rome's oppression. And he says, no, I'm going to be the suffering servant. And so Peter goes from, blessed art thou, Simon, to get thee behind me, Satan. You treasure not the things of God, but the things of men. He does so in just a few short verses, and he shows the misunderstanding of the mission of the Messiah. That the Messiah had come to be the suffering servant to take our place, to die on the cross, to reign victorious through his resurrection. And so we ask the question, who is Jesus? We ask the question, what is the mission of the Messiah? 
And Jesus is the Christ who came as the suffering servant, not as the conquering king. And he did come to lay down his life for his sheep and to save them from their sins. And now we enter into the last section of the book of Mark. And this section I'm going to entitle The Journey to the Cross. The Journey to the Cross. Now we're on a journey to the cross, and over the next several weeks as we unpack these five chapters, really we're covering a very short amount of time. Just a few days will transpire between what we read this morning and the end of the book. And yet Mark, as we've seen Mark already, one of his favorite words to you is, is anon, or straightway, or immediately, and we see him moving very quickly through the accounts of Christ, and he's taking us to the cross, and he wants to get us there to see the suffering Savior who's died in our place, and see this whole picture. Now it's as if he grabs the brake and pulls it back, and for five chapters we're going to walk through a week and a few days of his life. And it's going to unfold and we're going to see him being tested and questioned and we're going to see him prophesy in times and we're going to see uh, him crucified and we're going to see his trial played out in, 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 in beauty and we're going to see his resurrection. All of this is going to unfold in just a few days and Mark is slowing down these last five chapters to unfold it for us. And so as we come into the journey of the cross and we walk into these next five chapters, we want to ask the question... What does this journey of the cross look like? His journey to the cross. I want to take and stand together and let's read the word of God together this morning. And so Mark chapter number 11, verses 1 through 11. If you'll read along with me as I read aloud. And when they came nigh to Jerusalem, unto Bethpage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, he sendeth forth two of his disciples. And saith unto them, Go your way into the village over against you, and as soon as you be entered into it, you shall find a colt tied, whereupon never a man sat. Loose him and bring him. If any man say unto you, Why do you do this? Say ye that the Lord hath need of him. Straightway he will send him hither. And they went their way and found the colt tied by the door without in a place where two ways met, and they loosed him. Certain men of that stood there said unto them, What do ye loosing the cold? And they said unto them, Even as Jesus had commanded, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and cast their garments on him, and he sat upon him. Many spread their garments in the way, and the other cut down branches of the trees and strawed them in the way. And they went, and they that went before him and they that followed cried, saying, Hosanna, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Blessed be the kingdom of our father David that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And Jesus entered into Jerusalem and into the temple. And when he had looked round about upon all things, now the eventide was come. And he went out unto Bethany with the twelve. Let's pray together this morning. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is sufficient. Father, thank you that... You can speak to us from every page of this miraculous book. And Father, as we open the word this morning, may our hearts be stirred, may our minds be quickened, or may we be moved to action, or may we leave here more like Jesus than when we came. Holy Spirit of God, I can do nothing apart from you. We can hear nothing apart from you. We can obey nothing apart from you. Spirit of God, work in us 
the locusts quicken us this morning. Send a breath of revival into our souls today. In the precious name of Jesus, we ask it. Amen. You can be seated there. Hosanna in the highest. The text this morning is the text that we would base a Palm Sunday on, uh, also known as the triumphant entry, where Jesus comes in as the triumphant Messiah into the city. All prior to this moment, Jesus has done his best to keep the fame from spreading, so to speak. We find him healing uh, blinded eyes and saying, now keep it to yourself. Healing a lame man and don't tell anybody. Raising Jairus' daughter and don't tell anybody. He goes to the maniac of Gadara, which is in another cultural location and geographical location, and says to him, now spread abroad the things that the Lord has done for you. But in this Galilean ministry and even down toward Jerusalem, he's tried to keep this kind of a quiet ministry. He's working out a timetable and a plan. And now Jesus comes and following and purposely following the Old Testament prophecy, he makes a public declaration with his actions that he is the Messiah, King of the Jews. He puts it all on display in this moment as he comes into the city riding on the foal of a donkey. Zechariah, in chapter 9, verses 9 through 10, prophesies that the Messiah would enter this way. He prophesies that he would come in, and if you were to marry Daniel's prophecy with this, we see that the time is exactly ripe for the Messiah to come in and declare himself for who he is. I think it's interesting that this day would have been the 10th day of April, they tell us, or the month of Nisan in their calendar. This is the day the family was to choose the Passover lamb. The Passover lamb was to be chosen on this day and set apart and watched and tested. And what do we find over the next several chapters is that the Passover lamb is being watched and tested. And then he ascends to the cross and he's sacrificed on our behalf. It is estimated that some 500,000 lambs would have been sacrificed this Passover. The number is staggering. The number of lambs offered... The number of people gathering and crammed into this small geographical area, estimates of up to two and a half million people gathered and crammed into this area. The hustle and the bustle of the city must have been overwhelming. Many would travel to Jerusalem and they would travel by camel and by donkey and yet when they got close to the city, they would dismount and they would walk the rest of the way in. And that was customary of taking a long journey. Jesus does the opposite. He's walked to the city, and now when he's arriving close, he sends his disciples to get a colt of a donkey, and he rides the rest of the way into the city, thus fulfilling Zechariah's prophecy. Jesus is putting the truth to the point of accepting that either he is Christ or he is Antichrist. Either he is Christ or he is crazy. There is no opening or middle ground for who Jesus is. We cannot read the pages of Scripture and assume that Jesus is merely a good man. He is the Christ, the Son of the living God. He is the one that is the Savior of the world. Jesus chose a donkey in the day, but he did not choose the words the people would praise him with. Nor did he choose in some way the way he would die in the sense of 
perfectly, personally orchestrating it. And so some would come in and say, well, he could have accomplished this on his own or by some kind of human engineering. He definitely sends them to get the donkey. But all of this, I believe, was set up that he could make this declaration. And so he calls for them to go and get the donkey. We see the Hosanna, the phrase that is cried out. Hosanna simply means save us or oh save. It's a declaration of the king who has brought victory. And it would have been something that would have been used in the Old Testament when kings would come back from battle. The cult of a donkey is not a mistake either. As a matter of fact, a donkey would be a very derogatory thing in our day. And yet in this day, it's not at all. As a matter of fact, many royalty are seen in the Old Testament riding a donkey. The difference would be is that the king would ride a horse into battle and would ride the donkey back in victory. And as he came into the city, he would mount the back of a colt of a donkey or some kind of small demeaning animal and it would have said, not battle, but peace. And it was a declaration of victory and peace as he came in and they are literally crying out for victory as he's coming in. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, Hosanna, save us, save us. And this is the picture of the triumphant entry of our Lord coming in. The palm branches were also a sign of victory of the king as they made preparation for the king coming in to the city. With a little bit of a summary there of the text, I want to break this down if I could into three sections for us and, and try to drive these three areas home to us. First off, I want us to see this morning the command of the king. I want you to see the entrance of the king and then the response of the people. And I want to look at these three things. So first off, let's look, if we could, the command of the king. I want you to see in the beginning of our text here, in verses 1 through the 6, and Jesus is coming near. He calls two of the disciples. And he said to them, go in the way of the, into the village over against you. And as soon as you be entered into it, you shall find a colt tied, whereon never a man sat. Loose him and bring him. He said, I want you to go into town. I want you to find the colt that was tied. Loose the colt and bring him to me. That's the command. It's a very simple command. It's not a very complicated one. He tells them exactly where to go. He tells them where the colt will be, and then it'll be tied there. Um, and, and literally, the colt is tied in a place that would be the equivalent of you taking your car, leaving it running with the keys in it, and parked on the side of the road. The colt's not put away in a barn. He's not put aside into some kind of fencing. He's in the place where two ways meet, and, and the colt is left there just simply tied up. And so anyone could come and avail themselves of this colt. Now, it's not outside of human engineering somehow or another for the Lord to have prearranged this colt to be tied up in this place at this time. And this is not his first trip to Jerusalem. And, and so we might think, well, he's orchestrated this ahead of time, and that's fine if that's where you want to go with it. Uh, but I don't think it's also a stretch for the Lord to have miraculously known that the colt would be there in that place at that time. And so either way we go here, he knew what was taking place. The colt was there and it was tied up. And he says, now if anybody questions you about it, just simply tell them the Lord has need of them. Just simply say the Lord has need of them and he'll bring it back when he's done. And, and can you imagine just sending these two disciples, we're not told who the two are. Hey, I want you guys to go over to this city. There's going to be a colt tied up there. Just unloose the colt and bring him here. If anybody says anything to him, tell him the Lord has need of him and we'll bring him back when we're done. And you can imagine, 
okay, and so they go into the city. I mean, it'd be the equivalent of me saying to a couple of the guys over here, hey guys, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go up here three blocks away and turn right into that little subdivision there. On the second house from the left, there's gonna be a red car parked out front. The keys are in it. Just start the car up and bring it back here. Whose car is it? Oh, don't worry about that. Uh, well, what do we do if they, they ask us what we're doing? Just tell them that Mike's got need of it and we'll bring it back when we're done. And you, you can imagine the, the, the nervousness that must have been in that kind of command. And so he sends them on this command. I, wa I want you to see, what I want you to see about this command this morning is obedience is without explanation. Obedience doesn't always come with an explanation of why. Now, if you've got kids, you know that question really well. What's the question? Clean your room. Why? You get ready for school. Why? Get ready for bed. Why? Everything is why, why, why. And I don't think necessarily, folks, it is wrong to answer why. But I, when, when I was growing up, when I asked the question why, my dad's response was, because I said so. You got it. Because I said so. Why are we doing it that way? Because I said so. I'm bigger than you, and I said so. And that was sufficient. Dad was all sovereign, and we just did what Dad said. And the fact is, it didn't always answer the questions why. And I don't think for a minute that we as parents should always demand uh, obedience without explanation. I think we ought to teach our children why we're asking them to do things. But I do think also that obedience should not, or rather the why shouldn't always precede the obedience. There ought to be a time where we say, go do this and do it now. I'll explain later, but you need to go and obey. And here the Lord gives obedience. And by the way, a human leader may not know the beginning from the end, but our Lord knows the beginning from the end. And he gives a command, and he does so without explanation. And let me say this this morning, faith precedes understanding. If we knew all that 2021 was going to hold for us, and if a year ago this Sunday we knew all that 2020 was going to hold for us, I would imagine somebody would have said, you know what, just let me go to sleep, put me in a coma for a year, and wake me up next year, let's try this again. The fact is we didn't know what it holds, we don't know what tomorrow holds, but we step out in faith, believing that God does know what tomorrow holds, and he has an understanding of it, and he's given us some commands to follow, and so obedience precedes understanding. We understand that through faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the Word of God. That it is through faith that we find understanding. We don't find understanding and then act in faith. Because if you have understanding of things, it's not faith anymore. It is stepping out in faith, and here he sends them to obey. And by the way, it's not outside of God's operations to send his servants into uncomfortable situations. It's not outside of his plan to do that. As a matter of fact, I think we have a very wrong understanding when we look at what God calls us to do, and we look at what well, I know I should do that, but I just don't feel comfortable. And let me say this this morning, just because you don't feel comfortable doesn't mean he hasn't still commanded there are going to be many times in our call uh, of Christianity that we're to step in uncomfortable situations. And I promise you this, when you go to witness to someone, it can be very uncomfortable. And if you're waiting for the most comfortable time to be a gospel witness, you'll never witness. 
We're called to step into uncomfortable situations. We're called to go to places that make us feel out of place and out of sorts at times and step in. And by the way, making relationships right can be uncomfortable. Making friends can be uncomfortable. Being kind to those that hurt us can be uncomfortable. And all of those things are what we're called to do as believers, to step into uncomfortable situations. You see, it is not outside his operation to send his servant into uncomfortable situations. He does it often with the Apostle Paul. He does it with the Apostles here. And we're told that they get there, they're untying the colt, and somebody confronts them. Hey, what are you doing? Why, why are you untying the colt? The Lord hath need of him. Oh, okay, go ahead. You know, somebody ventured that maybe this was some kind of passcode that was prearranged, that Jesus had prearranged with the people. You know, the Lord has need of him. And it was just like, oh, okay, we're good. You've got the passcode, the special handshake, now you're good to go. Whatever the issue was, whether this man knew who the Lord was, or either way, the Lord had prophesied it. He had prepared the way for them, and now he sends them on a mission, and they obey without knowing what the outcome will be. And let me say this, no circumstance is without his knowledge when he commands it. No circumstances. You know, God knows what he's commanding us to do, and he knows the eventualities of his commands. Get this for a second. You say, God, I know what you told me to do, but do you realize, fill in the blank. Like, I I know what you've commanded me, but do you realize this is going to happen? Have you considered this? it's, It's like, God, you know, hey, look. I know you've told me to give generously and freely of what you've blessed me with, that I'm not to be a reservoir of of resources, but a conduit of resources, and that we're supposed to give from what God has blessed us with and give of the first fruits of our increase, and we're to do that freely. And God, I know you've called me to do that, but have you considered my income? You say, yes, I have. You see, there's no eventuality in what we're called to do that God is not aware of. And so we can't sit back, and, and often we do. God gives a command, and we sit back and go, now, if, if I do this, then this would be their response and their response, and they could do this. And, well, God, I don't think you've thought through this really well. And so we almost impugn the sovereignty of God by unwilling to obey because it'll make us uncomfortable, or maybe God hasn't thought through of what's going to happen. Well, I mean, God, I know you've called me to be faithful in my marriage, to you, to my friends. But do you know how hard it is to be a friend to them? He's like, yeah. Do you know, do you know the personality of my husband? Yeah. You know, and I, I was having some thinking yesterday and, and, and just in some devotional last night, we were sitting reading in the living room and, and the thought came to my mind, What does it mean to love our enemies? And if we're to love our enemies, what does it mean then to love our friends? And it seems to me if we're to love our enemies and we're to love our neighbors, then surely we're to love our family and our spouse when they do us wrong. It seems to me that if that is the call of Christianity, and by the way it is, love your enemies, pray for them who would despitefully use you, wish them well, hope for their good, then surely we should get along with the people in the pews of our church. Surely we should pour out our love. Yeah, but pastor, do you think God's considered how much of a jerk they are? He knows. And by the way, he knows how much of a jerk I am. 
He knows how much of a jerk you are. He knows all about those things within us. And he's not surprised by the eventualities. And he still says, I want you to go into the uncomfortable situation. And I want you to obey without knowing how it's going to come out. Well, I mean, I know God's told me to kind of watch what I say. And supposed to guard my lips and not be a gossip. But God, do you know the information that I have right now? I just got to tell somebody. God knows. He knows what you know. He knows what's happening. He knows all of those things. And yet he still looks at us and says, let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt. Let it always be that case. And so God, he sends them on a journey that they don't know the outcome of. They can't see the eventualities of themselves, but he knows the eventualities. And here's the thing, Christians, if we could draw a bottom line to this thought this morning, here's the bottom line I would draw. Truth should be our first question, not consequences. Truth should be the first question, not consequences. Too often we sit back and think, well, if I do this, this is what it'll cost me. This is what will happen. This is the friend I'll lose. This is what'll be uncomfortable about it. Yeah, those consequences are too big. The question is not what are the consequences. The question is what is the command? And if this is what I'm called to do, then let's have the courage to step out in faith and say, God, this is where you're calling. So let me obey. Let me give. Let me hold my tongue. Let me be faithful. And so we see the first observation here, the command of the Lord. And here's the phrase. I love this phrase. The Lord hath need of him. The Lord hath need of him. You imagine this guy having the donkey. And how it was prepared for him to give up the donkey, I don't know. But whatever it was, when the man heard that the Lord had need of him, he let the donkey go and the disciples took him. Jesus rode that donkey into there on the triumphant entry. What an opportunity to serve the Lord. Let me say this this morning. This man, nor you or I, are owners of anything. We are stewards of everything. We, We have our possessions But our possessions are for his use and his glory, not our indulgence. It doesn't belong to me. And how often do I get angry over the things that belong to me and you hurt my possessions and we hold on to them so tightly. Jesus is holding very loosely the things of this world. Are we willing to surrender what the Lord hath need of? Am I willing to say, Lord, whatever you have, and here's what I have in my resources, my, my, my wealth, my time, and my talent, my treasure, my influence, my health, my family. Lord, here's what I have. Here are my children, God. You do with them where you want to do. You take them where you want to take them. And our children are growing older, and the thoughts have come to Susie and I so many times. What if the Lord sends one of our kids to the mission field? And those thoughts come into your mind. What if they go thousands of miles away and and I, I think about it and I, I think about leaving home myself. I left home at 18 and I've never been back. And it was God's will to take me away from home and family and he had a purpose in it and a plan in it. And so I don't know what God might call of our our stewardship that we've been given. But if the Lord says, the Lord hath need of it, we ought to surrender it. But here's, here's the problem I have. is so often I'm not willing to surrender what the Lord hath need of I'm only willing to surrender what I have no need for. Those are the things I'm willing to give up. 
I don't have any need for it anymore, so you can have it. I'm good. And we give God our least and not our first fruits. We say, God, you know, I'm kind of done with this, and I, I, don't, I don't really need it anymore, and so, God, you can have this last 30 minutes of the day while I'm falling asleep. He says, the Lord hath need of it. Not just what I have no need for. And so, God, give me a heart to say, Lord, if you have need of it, I want to surrender it to you. You see, our giving cannot be limited by our abundance, but it must also go to our want. It must not be, well, God, I've got plenty of this, so you're welcome to take some. But I only have a few of these things, so I'm going to keep those for myself. But I give God whatever he calls for. And if it's the only one, then it's his. Because I'm a steward, not an owner. You see, the surrender of what we have is of greater importance to our Lord than the hypothetical surrender of what we wish we had. And I think a lot of times we live with the win-then mentality. Well, when I get this job, then I'll give to the Lord. When I get this new schedule, then I'll sacrifice some of my time. When then, and what we should be doing is not looking into the future and wondering when things will clear up for me to sacrifice, but for me to look at what God has put in my hands right now, looking at my time and my talent and my treasure and saying, God, I have a, just a paltry amount. I don't have a whole lot of time. I don't have a whole lot of treasure. I don't have a whole lot of talents. But Lord, what I have, if you have need of it, I'm going to give out of what I have. By the way, I don't know what your schedules are, and they're all over the place this morning. And that's why it's so important that you, in the sincerity of your heart, say, God, here's what I have, and I'm going to give you out of what I do have, not out of what I don't have. You know, and I, I, I've used the southern humor so many times in the last three years, you're probably tired of it, but I'll tell the joke again because it's my sermon, not yours. Um, um, <clears throat> the fellow went to the pastor. He said, Pastor, if I had $1,000, I'd give half of it to the Lord. And he said, well, I appreciate that. He said, I mean it, Pastor. Matter of fact, Pastor, if I had $500, I'd give half of it to the Lord. He goes, I, I appreciate that. Pastor, if I had a $100 bill, I'd give half of it to the Lord. The pastor looked at the farmer. He said, what if you had $20? He goes, that's no fair, Pastor. You know I got $20. And here's what we have. is a few hours, a few dollars. And if the Lord looks and says, I have need of it. Then he's the steward. He's the owner. We're the steward. And we surrender it. This morning, as we think of our resources of time and talent and treasure, understand this. Contrary to Western Christianity and a perversion of Christianity by Western culture, Jesus did not come to help you choose the best path for you. Listen to that. Jesus did not come to help you choose the best path for you, but he came to take you down the path he made for you. He has a path he created for you. He's called you to a purpose. He's not looking for you to have your best life. He's looking for you to be the surrendered vessel that he made you to be. Too often we look at our children and we say, what do you want to be? And the question should be, what would God have you be? What has God created you for? What is he calling you to? And to succeed at the wrong thing is the greatest failure you can have. May our hearts be surrendered and say, God, if you have need of it, it's yours. The Lord 
hath need of it. We see not only the request or the command of the king, we see the entrance of the king. Again, Jesus is making a deliberate and dramatic statement that he is the Messiah. We've covered that. It's a prophetic entrance, and we've covered that. It's prophecy on display. We see the Messiah, the King of Kings, being declared as he rides this donkey into the city. Hosanna, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. And they're singing, and they're casting the palm branches down. But in reality, it's not the prophetic entrance that we might picture in our mind. It's a rather humble entrance. If I was going to prepare for this event, I think I'd want to get some kind of marching band and, and probably get these city officials out there and we'd have a presentation at the end of it and somebody could present Jesus the key to the city and we would just make a big deal out of this whole thing. But none of that is taking place. As a matter of fact, this procession does not start with any pomp and circumstance but with 12 men and a donkey and one man riding on the back of a donkey. And they begin to come into the city and spontaneously the people begin to cry out. No band, no city leaders, no key to the city. And by the way, this morning, he needs no symbol of authorities for all authority is his in heaven and earth. He doesn't need any stripes on his uniform for he is king of kings and he is lord of lords. He's the God of all creation and he rides into the city on the foal of a donkey declaring peace to all who would have peace. What a picture. And this morning, no, no matter how far evil would, tr would crush truth to the ground, truth will rise again. And Jesus Christ makes this declaration of being Messiah and the same voices that are crying out, Hosanna, in just a few short days will cry out with the same passion, crucify him. And their turn is so quick. Here he is, humble in his response. He had no place to lay his head. He borrowed a penny for a sermon illustration. He borrowed a lunch to feed the 5,000. He borrowed a boat to preach a sermon. He borrows an upper room for the Last Supper. He borrows a donkey here, but I'm glad to tell you he borrows a tomb very shortly as well because he won't need any of these things very long. Here he comes in, Jesus fixed on the eternal, not wrapped up in the present. This morning, if our Lord could be of such humble means, maybe we could be content with his bountiful blessing. Has not God been good to us? Has he not blessed us with more than we need? He's so good, and yet he had no place to lay his head. What a Savior. We're not losing out when we loan to him. He owns it all already. The response of the people. They cast their garments. This is probably an expensive gesture. Palm branches are, are, are strewn. As a matter of fact, such an expensive gesture that would be this is that the garments would be considered as collateral for a loan. As if you would take your outer garment, especially that cloak that you would wrap yourself in at night, if you were to go to some place and say, hey, could I borrow such and such for the day and I'll come back at the end of night and I'll return it to you. And they would loan, they would give them their cloak for proof that they would come again. And these men were throwing their coats on the ground and Jesus is walking over them. Before him and behind him they cry out, Seven days from now, they will cry for his crucifixion. 
You know, many praise him today. They praise him in the light of day, but in the darkness of night, they curse him. Let us not be fair-weather praisers of the one who... See, this is clearly praise reserved for Messiah. There's no question that this praise from Zechariah, this whole event was for the Messiah. And the praise that they were giving, Hosanna, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord, is referring to the king that would come and rule. As a matter of fact, John and Luke testify to this when they write it this way, blessed is the king of Israel that comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel that comes in the name of the Lord. Clearly, they're looking for their king, Jesus, to come. And then not only do we have that as evidence, but we also have the protest of the Pharisees as evidence. Hey, tell them to be quiet. Tell them to stop talking and saying things like this. This is not appropriate for them to ascribe you as the Messiah. What does Jesus say to them? If they held their peace, the rocks would cry out. By the way, after the fall of Jerusalem, very little has sounded from Jerusalem since then. But in 2019, 4.5 million people traveled to the Holy Land to hear the rocks cry out. And they stood, and Calvary testifies of Christ. And an empty tomb testifies of Christ. And a boat on the Sea of Galilee testifies of Christ. That whole place is littered with people to hear the message of what the rocks of the Holy Land literally are crying out today. That Jesus truly was the Messiah. It's something the world economy can't ignore. Because Jesus was more than just a man. Jesus said if they hold their peace, the rocks will cry out. Make no mistake. He was and is worthy of their praise and was and is worthy of our praise. As we stand here today at the beginning of 2021, I want to conclude with verse 11. Verse 11 will tie us into next week. Look what he says. And Jesus entered into Jerusalem and into the temple. And when he looked round about upon all things, now even tide was come, and he went out unto Bethany with the twelve. Pretty unassuming verse. He comes into the city. He goes into the temple property. He looks around. And he leaves. When we compare this to other passages of scripture, especially Luke, we understand that he sees a need for correction there. And he's willing to give correction. We'll see that. He'll bring correction where it's needed. But he also sees a need for compassion. And Luke 19 tells us in verse 31 that he saw the city and he wept over the city. He wept. Jesus saw the confusion, the bustle of two and a half million people. He saw the selling and the money changing and he saw the greed and the misunderstanding of who he was and he saw it all and he stood outside the city and he wept and he said, oh, I've offered you peace but you wouldn't have it. I've come to you offering peace and you've rejected it. Friend, you and I, when we look around this broken world, you cannot watch the television today without thinking that somebody has lost their mind. Because of the 
brokenness that we see on display everywhere. And the response so often is for us to be angered in our heart over the change of our nation and the change of the world around us. And we feel grieved about it and we become angry. But let me say this. We cannot minister to broken people with dry eyes and stoic hearts. We cannot minister to hurting people unless our hearts are broken for those hurting people. And so the prayer as we enter into this journey to the cross is to not just see the authority of Jesus, but see the compassion of his heart and say, God, give us the heart of Jesus, the tears of Jesus for our neighbors. When have we wept over our next door neighbor and prayed for them to come to salvation? When have we wept for our family members and asked God to save them? When have we wept for our city, for our world? And if we are not going to go forth bearing precious seed, and we go forth weeping, bearing precious seed. And make no mistake, we don't have the compassion of the Savior. It's going to be hard-pressed for a lost world to believe the message of our Savior. Where is our brokenness again? Jesus demonstrates it. Though Jesus has declared he's the Messiah, he is now going to walk out what the Messiah must do. All the fanfare is over now. Now the testing comes. Now the questions. Now the trials. Now the beatings. Now the mockery. Because the Messiah, he didn't come that time to reign. He came that time to suffer. He's walking into his suffering. He's walking into his passion. And this morning, as we conclude, he is still here today and calling for his own to surrender their self and their possessions. What do you have need of, Lord? What do you have need of? Opening our hands and our homes and our hearts and saying, God, whatever you want, it's yours. This morning, not only is he calling for that, but this morning he is worthy of praise from surrendered people with surrendered lives, with surrendered stuff, proclaiming him in the streets to people who will hear. He's worthy of it. I got news for you. He came in on a donkey last time. The next time he comes, he'll be riding a horse. And on his garment, which is dipped in blood, there will be a name written, which no man knows but he himself, and he will be the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And he will return in power and in glory like we've never seen. But today, we offer to the world the Prince of Peace. Because as we said before, the good news is only good news to those who believe. We have a responsibility to go to a lost and dying world with the message and let him call them to himself. What a miracle. What a privilege. He this morning is worthy of all our. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, thank you for your word. Lord, thank you for the richness of a text like this this morning. Holy Spirit of God, do a work in our hearts. Drive it deep into our souls. We'll praise you for what you're doing in us and through us. In the precious name of Jesus, we ask it all. Would you stand with me to your feet and let's sing.